Welcome everyone. You're tuned into Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. I'm Carly. And uh, a very special episode today. Uh, joining us is UC Irvine professor of film and media and author of the book Virtue Hoarders, The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class. Catherine Liu is joining us today. Welcome, Catherine. Hi. Well, thank you for having me. The sort of impetus for this particular discussion, <laughs> I think, arose because I had started following you recently and, and caught you tweeting out some ideas about uh, the professional managerial class and specifically as it relates to Julianne Moore's character in Todd Haynes' 1995 film, Safe. And when I saw this, I, I realized we just had to talk about it because I think that the film is is so many different things. It, it, it has a little bit of this psychological thriller element to it. There's some body horror stuff going on here, a, a social satire, um, a, a pretty biting AIDS allegory. But one of the things that I think is really profound about it is investigating uh, and, and indicting this sort of professional managerial class at uh, the end of the 80s, early 90s, and sort of this era leading up to the end of history. No, I think that's a very, very good way of putting it. One of the things that I noticed, what because you guys made me rewatch the film, was that um, Todd Haynes really understood the Californian suburban um, subdivision, very similar to the one I live in, in Irvine, near the University of California, Irvine. He really understood it as both hell and heaven for the PMC. <laughs> like it was designed, the San Fernando Valley subdivision, the beautiful McMansions that are there, as well as the ones that we live in here in um, Orange County, which are very similar. They're really but ugly. They have no ideas. There is no social collective good because they've given up on modernism and all of the, and sort of mass produced quality. So it's these huge homes that almost reach the end of their plots, like the one that Julianne Moore lives in with her um, very wealthy husband. You don't know quite what they do. And so they have all of the eclectic symbols of this new class of very, very profitable, very, very wealthy top level PMC types. And it's totally in conjunction with Martha Stewart's idea also <laughs> at that period very powerfully of how to live with luxury and entertain in style. Although Julianne Moore and her husband are too creepy to even entertain this um, <laughs> film, but they, they have these like old bourgeois signifiers like that really weird exterior with the stones and the, and the birch trees, but they are people with, who are so empty and who have no taste and who have so much money. And this is what happened at the end of the 80s with um, the financialization of the economy, was that you have this new rich class who were college educated, who thought they were elites. I mean, the ambiguity of Julianne Moore is that you don't know what she, um, what her actual um, educational background is, but she married this very wealthy guy who kind of hangs out with these tough talking, I would say like uh, top level corporate lawyers is what I imagine. Mm -hmm. And she may actually represent the last of what Barbara Ehrenreich talks about where the rich corporate guy marries his beautiful secretary because she's a second wife and she has that total trophy wife aspect to her. But there's 
just this emptiness there. And it's this persistent emptiness in the class itself, because this is a class that no longer believes in history, no longer believes in culture as such. And they just try to cultivate this like horrific taste and luxury so that their interiors look like mortuaries, really <laughs> mortuaries, like all of the disposition of the lamps and the um, plants all look like that. And it has nothing to do with the context of the landscape, the land, because everyone imagines Southern California as being this tabula rasa for mm. the um, lords and kings of the universe. And this is right before Silicon Valley takes over too. And so San Jose, Silicon Valley basically are like, you know, just the explosion of what happened in the San Fernando Valley and what happened in Orange County too. And it's just horrifying. Like, I don't want to make too much of this, but I do live in one of these places. <laughs> really, like that film, when I, and I was like a struggling Bohemian graduate student when I first watched the film. So I was like, I am in the fucking nightmare. Like I live in the Julianne Moore world now. My house is not as big as hers, I just want to say. <laughs> you don't have any weird, monstrous black couches in your in your house? No, no, that I traded out for my teal. <laughs> don't you love it to have, um, it was so much about her taste. Like she was, she was like, we didn't order these couches and her little like baby voice. And Todd Haynes is from Southern California. So he really knows like the psychology of emptiness. I found Julianne Moore's performance, uh, and we can certainly get into this further, but I found her performance incredibly unnerving but also she at once engenders feelings of sympathy and empathy in me and also complete antagonism and that's like a really um I mean that's a hard thing to do right but she does sort of walk that line and it it even in my mind um kind of mimics the PMC perspective of like you know, having a certain amount of distance, there's like performative sympathy on the part of, you know, seeing suffering take place, right? But then you're also viewing that person as a cancer or some some sort of like, as I think it, it it's referenced somewhere that she's like indigestible in her environment, right? I just thought she navigated that beautifully and is also a testament to Haynes himself and his direction. Well, I want to ask you probably this. Do you, are you saying that she embodies this PMC psychology or did she evoke that in you? She evoked that in me. I felt that perspective watching. And I think Haynes does a really fantastic job of this as well. You know, you describe these sort of mortuary settings. He uses these really wide lenses and it puts you at a distance. You're, you're removed from this person who your primary focus is. And so I found both her performance and also, again, a testament to Haynes's direction and his, um, his implementation of sort of aesthetics of the movie, that that engendered that it more or less was a, a, a faux PMC perspective on my part as the viewer. Right, right, right. Well, I think there's something that he gets and that she gets so well here, which is an authentic performance of as someone who is utterly empty. And that I think is really this subjectivity of like upper middle class, professional managerial class consumerism, because what she can get exercised about 
is being contaminated by the, her environment. So before she be, she discovers that she suffers from an environmental illness and you know basically enters this like creepy cult that we'll talk about later, which is just like a mindfulness retreat, but in a summer camp setting, um, she is so flat and kind of doll-like and childish. And you know, she wants a perm, she's going to aerobics class. She's worried about her couch. She's gardening and she's perfectly doll-like and very attractive and completely sexually frigid. But the moment when she actually flashes like severe, like intense affect is when she has the breakdown in the dry cleaners and she ends up in the hospital. And there's a, an obviously Mexican-American maid cleaning, spraying her hospital room. And she screams at her like, stop that. And to me, that <laughs> is the PMC woman. Like that is Karen, you know, that yes. so many people like that now who've been in their homes for like 14 months. They live in beautiful homes in our beautiful state. They have not seen anyone. They've been watching Rachel Maddow and they've been reading their favorite blogs and they've been on Pinterest and they're checking out Instagram and they're watching TikTok. And they are terrified of opening up. They're terrified of the other because this whole thing is confirmed to them that other people are basically contaminated. Yes. And working class people are contaminants and that the whole environment is toxic. Mm-hmm. And for some, and because they work these PMC jobs, which someone called, I think, email jobs, which I think is really hilarious. <laughs> or I have to like, you basically can do your job on email and they don't have to go out. Yes. All their fantasy of the world as contaminant is completely come true with COVID. So they don't have feel any solidarity with people who are working. They don't feel any solidarity with the homelessness crisis has been caused by our fucking out of control real estate in this country, in California, especially. And um, they feel really justified in their kind of repulsion uh, um, with regard to ordinary life, ordinary people. And so that's why I was just obsessed with this film recently because I've been following social media on some of these late, must be some hybrids. And uh, I was noticing like they were having these really, really weird reactions to opening up, these really dystopic reactions. So I was like, wow, this idea of empty consumerism, total privilege and this college educated superiority because as i said i think before it's not quite clear that julianne moore is has been to college or you know has the kind of um educational credentials that would make her feel justified and feeling superior to other people she just feels special now because she's figured out that she's environmentally ill and this really dovetails nicely with this whole obsession that the PMC elites have with, you know, both natural foods and toxins, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like their fear of toxicity is absolutely incredible. And detoxes are so popular in California. Like, yep. detox, I need to do my colon cleanse. I'm, <laughs> oh, like, I'm so tired. Like all of these trends that um, Haynes puts out there in this film, they've become super glorified and completely like mass produced because whole foods has like a giant 
detox area. I haven't been to Whole Foods in a really long time, but it's <laughs> last there. And so you can just work on yourself in the pandemic, in lockdown, and it's kind and and the environment is toxic. You're wearing a freaking mask every time you go out. So it's like this. The horror show that Tom Haynes was showing about class and upper middle class moral turpitude in 1995, as he was reflecting on 1987, has totally come true in COVID. I'm just, I feel like we should, it should be um, mandatory viewing under the new socialist government. We will all have to (laughs) form its class politics. I'm fascinated by this this point that you're bringing up because... uh, I think the atomization, like the individualizing of wellness, of healing, of recovery in this film as sort of a, a thematic through line is one of the most intriguing things to explore. Because early on, you know, you you see Julianne Moore as this suburban housewife. She is profoundly removed from the world. She her Her only interaction with anyone outside is in, you know, a handful of chores that she completes day to day and and Fulvia her her maid who is essentially her mother you know she has this very preening cloying kind of call for her Fulvia 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 could I have some milk some red Where's my address book Right those are her those are her intersubjective relations and she's totally infantilized, but dependent on this Mexican-American maid who, as you say, is her mother in some way. And um, and we do see her having sex for one se- And she's totally detached from that. I loved how detached and what you, her, her, she's already detached. In the beginning of the film, she has a complete justificatory, like metaphysics of detachment by the end of the film. But she can hardly even say her name or something. You know, she has this difficulty actually articulating who she is or what she needs. It's like this hyper-feminine positionality. And I was totally fascinated by that. Maybe, Carly, I was having your reaction, which is kind of like, empathy and repulsion at the same time, which is like what the PMC wants to have with her. Yes. But I was also fascinated by how well Haynes and she dealt with like someone's utter um, dissociation. And that, that that arc of dissociation is not about becoming more connected to people, but about becoming increasingly detached from people. So that she's like living in a porcelain-lined igloo by the end, and looking at herself in the mirror and saying, oh, "I love you, I love you," and I was like, <laughs> "Oh my God, this is so. This is the ultimate narcissism. This is, this is like the apotheosis of what um, self-care is supposed to be about." Yes, this is about other people. Care about yourself. Like other people are gross and contaminated, and you have to learn to love yourself. And she's already so beautiful and doll-like. Like people already, you know, have give her this admiration that she doesn't really deserve. She has embodied this language of victimhood, where she says, "I've hated myself, and now I'm going to learn to love myself." And I'm like, "Where the hell did that come from?" You know, like you're the ultimate trophy wife. Like, how do you get to embody self-hatred too? And shame, and I feel like that's just become generalized trajectory 
of healing and self-care that we have now for everyone. And it's really paralyzing. One of the things that Haynes is talking about is like the utter political collapse of the public mm-hmm. sphere and how disgusting that is subjectively and collectively for the nation. I mean, Velvet Underground was about that too, but like the 80s just seem so repulsive in a way. And that's, I also think what he, what we was getting at with the um, color scheme, like mm-hmm. I think obsessed with the color scheme of the house and how it looked like mortuary and the, the lighting was so unnatural, but like we live in California and it's supposed to have all this natural lighting, but everything's things so artificial. And there's this color right next to the teal that's in their bedroom. And I'm like, what is that color? What is that color? And I was like, is that beige? Is that orange? Is that pink? And then I was like, it's peach. It's peach. It is peach. Peach and so long. And Haynes is like, that's the major like color trope through this film. They I'm like, that is so 80s. That's peach. And I don't want to like get too caught up in this, but um it it wasn't it's a meant she's also wearing a lot of pink and peaches. And I feel like that's also about this kind of very particular 80s moment, which thought like that was really natural and feminine, but also you can wear your peach dress with its shoulder pads. So you look very strong at the same time that you're wearing this completely like, I don't know, like very, very disorienting color. Let's just put it that way. That is of that era. I don't know that I have anything more to say about this, except that it's just brilliant mise-en-scene. And it's like the degeneration of the counterculture, which prided itself on like natural colors and earth tones, which is kind of not my thing either. But but by the 80s, they take this temperature of the earth tones of the hippies and they turn it into peach and teal, which is totally artificial and reified, like naturalness or neutral neutral right neutrality and i'm like this is just you know vomitorious but it really illustrates like the complete reification of um i'm, I'm really good being hyperbolic here but it's the death of <laughs> counterculture it's the death of the alternative it's the death of politics it's the death of oppositionality it's the death of design it's the death of all those mid-century modern ideals about mass-produced housing, mass-produced higher education. Like if you think about like what the aims were into and what like, you know, even before Bauhaus was into, they were like really into primary colors, right? Because Mm -hmm. black, white, red, blue, and then you create from that palette and you make a building like a beautiful thing because it's like a painting and like peach is just the demolition (laughs) of all that peach is like fuck you modernism i'm so glad you're bringing up the colors i do you remember this fad in the 80s and i'm i'm old enough to remember my mom or someone in my family talking about this do you remember this idea of seasons like that every woman has a season okay so I could not help but think of that like phenomenon, this th- that like package that was sold of like 
come meet with a professional consultant and and discover your seasons and it would give you this like color palette that is you're in autumn you're in autumn yes and i i very i i didn't like investigate this too much because i didn't want to go down that rabbit hole but i i do distinctly remember that there was a season that contained like a lot of peaches and like these sort of like easter colors that you're talking about and I just, spring. I, I t- it must be spring. I, I could not help but think about that with Julianne Moore's character specifically. And also that that practice or, or sort of approach to beauty is like another manifestation of this sort of at once feigning universality, but also like completely shunning it. Like we're individualizing you because you're your own seed- season, but- <laughs> Everyone is only four things, right? One of four things. And like, well, you can only wear four colors at any time. It's your um, eyeshadow too. And it's uh, all your palette for your lipsticks and everything. Top to bottom. But think about like what Hillary Clinton was wearing or, you know, in the 80s. Think about like how all of those power women were dressing. The 80s was like such an ambivalent moment for feminism because you had this idea of like all these empowered women and women were going to all these elite universities and women could have everything. And then you have this like completely infantilizing attitude towards women. And and it was almost, but it was like women were being initiated into becoming like higher level consumers because they were becoming more PMC elites. So it wasn't just you you know, buying stuff for your home or decorating, like you were exploring yourself, you were exploring what was, how you were going to be presented in the public, except that, as Erin put it, she, Julianne Moore doesn't have anything but like customer-client relations with other people, except for her husband. Everything else is a clientelist relationship. And then she has that like really weird relationship with her stepson, which almost doesn't deserve it it's so like detached from a maternal you know feeling that it's kind of like that that would be a whole other story that would be so fascinating to tell is like her actual relationship to that kid all of her clientelist relationships though culminate in her illness in her joining this group at renwood or whatever the retreat center mm-hmm. in new mexico where she discovers that there are other people who also suffer from environmental illness and it's like the culmination of this detached clientelistic relationship with the world where everyone is just providing you services and you are horrified by chemicals and your environment is sensitive to those chemicals. And someone like a guru then tells you what your illness is. There are these other people who have illnesses like you and you have to retreat to this place that tries to destroy the chemical, you know, um, influence on you so that you can heal. And you realize like there's this trajectory of healing in Renwood that really only ends in death. Like death is actually Mm -hmm. final healing because the person who's occupied the porcelain lined igloo before her has finally died. That's why there's a place open to her. But I was thinking like that is actually the place where people who have a purely consumerist clientelist relationship with the other end up because they're so frustrated with this 
inability to connect to other people and they feel the environment as a toxic invasion, like the other is actually just a contaminant on you, that your only relationship to others will be this one-on-one, -on -one, the guru who hails a group of people like you who are equally special, but who also need to be completely isolated from other people. Today, you know, those kinds of retreat areas would be so expensive, right? There's no transaction here, but obviously her husband's paying for her to go there, right? Yes. So it simply is a clientelist relationship that's masked as one of healing and connection and the guru and the guru relation, because all of these other um, paths to healing that she's been trying have failed her, like western medicine you know she mm -hmm. in the hospital but there's a woman using spray her doctor just like condescending you know tennis playing OBGYN from the 1960s who basically just tells her she's a hysteric the psychiatrist <laughs> is so scary the psychiatrist she goes to see with the sort of oriental panels on yes. of his um, office is um also um totally alienating and patriarchal, but she finally finds this HIV positive healer guru who talks about how he, and this, this is, this was the most important thing for me because I actually remember feeling this way in the eighties and Haynes actually articulated in this character. Who's like the chief healer at um, the, for environmentally ill people. He goes, you know, I've stopped reading the news because I cannot have that negativity in my body. I can't think about those negative things because I'm, you know, I'm not going to allow that to happen to me. And we know, we know that he's HIV positive, right? So we know that this film was set in 87. Ronald Reagan has not mentioned the word AIDS in any, in the public sphere. Um, people are desperate, people are dying. And there are many, many alternative healing, positive thinking um, types who are empathetic, like Louise Hayes or even Marianne Williamson came from that to a certain degree. And it was like trying to take charge of your own healing because medicine was failing you. Politics was failing you. This epidemic was going on. But what do you do and what, what does he do in the midst of this horror? He stops reading the news. And I think that depoliticization is so important. That is really, really deeply a part of what happened in the 80s. What happened to like liberal progressive PMC types were just like, the world is so disgusting and I cannot pay attention to this anymore because I have to focus on myself in my porcelain lined igloo. But she she was never even connected. Like you don't even know like that how connected these people were not connected to the politics of the times. These people are not even in any way substantively connected to other people. But right. this allows them to actually retreat more deeply into this monadic state. And I feel like that is a path that American progressives or leftists or subculturists have always loved to take. You know, there there's so many retreat from Esalen to Chautauqua to all these utopic um, intentional communities, American progressives and visionaries like love to say, you know, we just need to cut ourselves up from the world because the world, there's so many problems and I have a hundred acres of rolling, you know, land where <laughs> I'm going to invite you all here. And there is always this transaction and they're always kind of grifters, but, um, 
the idea is to create this um, utopia completely detached from um, the culture you're in, the country you're in too. And you could say like, in a way, like the PMC takeover of the left that we've been witnessing recently has similar features to it where you, you know, starting with Hillary, but you know, it still goes on with her saying like, those people are deplorables and you know, mm -hmm. the most Americans are hateful and we need to be in our enclaves. Like we need to be in Berkeley or San Francisco or Austin or, Right. We need to put on liberal enclaves because I cannot deal with those people. I cannot mm -hmm. deal with the negativity. And it's like this whole, um, the inability to actually deal with contradiction, to deal with argument, to respect other people, to respect other people so there can be a politics. That is all in Todd Haynes's film. Like, I just feel like his vision of California predicted all of these things that have happened but it was before the digital age so before we could actually go down the rabbit hole in our smartphones he was already showing like how this retreat was taking place and that's basically what a subdivision is actually she, you know the subdivision is one retreat and she just goes like farther in yes totally um, one clip yeah, just they're 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 cut from the same cloth. They are just two different uh, externalities that allow her to put her head in the sand and not deal with any of this stuff. And so I'm yeah, I'm really glad that you're bringing up this sort of like flattening of like politics that was happening in the film and in the era that it's reflecting on here. Because the the guru Peter, this this sort of self help guy, is like one of the most fascinating characters. Where uh, you know he he does say right like he has to turn off the news. He has to like not engage with the newspaper or the toxicity and the and the depression inherent in learning about the world. But the conversation that he had or this sort of ceremony that he conducted previously in the same space was one where he was sort of uh, projecting and externalizing his individual healing into the world. Because when you look out on the world from a place of love and a place of forgiveness, what you are seeing outside is a reflection of what you feel within. What do I see outside me? I see the growth of environmentalism, right? <laughs> and holistic study. I see a decline in drugs and promiscuity. things outside in the world because what I am seeing is a global transformation identical to the transformation I revel at within because of the because of the solution I've found because of how healthy I feel because I've learned to love myself I see it manifesting in all of these different movements in the world that are all great you know just sort of projections of that thing that it's, it's it's caused all this goodness to manifest while not acknowledging you know, the the limitations of those particular movements and, and ideals, and also, frankly, their own com complicity in a lot of society's ills. Right. No. And so that whole model is really coming out of the age of Aquarius model of social change, <laughs> where you just have like a couple of enlightened people who then spread the word to other enlightened people. And then 
that becomes a critical mask and everything just changes. There's no political struggle. There's no social struggle. It's just about, like, as you said, and um, manifesting the personal in a communicative way so other people can take that path of healing. And literally, this is what the age of Aquarius like hippies wanted was like, we're, we're transitioning from the age of, I don't know, Scorpio or whatever, some bad age, no Capricorn to the age of Aquarius where people are just going to be more loving and more enlightened and more healing. And this, this transformation is going to happen in this astrological way, but that astrological way happens through, you know, the manifestation of manifestation of certain very enlightened people who are going to, you know, shine their love light on you and then you will shine your love light on someone else. And um, that that is another kind of form of total depoliticization. Change takes place painfully and through struggle. And as a complete, as a historical materialist, Marxist, change, social change only takes place in the class struggle. When the working class rises up against or the peasant class or peasant classes with, with in alliance with other classes rises up against um, the holders of capital, the holders of privilege, those who threaten them with power. But you don't, but here's a notion of social change that has no powerful antagonists. You just have to reach the enlightenment and share the enlightenment. And then like, there'll be a critical mass and everything will explode into a new change. But this also, this language was also used by Bush one when he called America a thousand points of light, a thousand points of light. And that's like all the goodness in the world is going to become, you know, it's going to be transformative because I'm calling it out. And, um, you know, the, the thing is, what was that darkness though, that mm -hmm. made, Peter turn away from it. It was Reaganomics. It yes. was, you know, it was the end of the Cold War and it was a terrifying and very, very dark time. And there were real material things that were happening to the American middle class and working class that were destroying the safety net, that were um, really changing the material conditions for ordinary people. Like I remember, because I'm very old, um, I remember getting a graduate student fellowship, a PhD fellowship of $11,000 a year in New York, right? So I was like, this is amazing. I'm going to have this money and I can do what I want and live. Reagan's tax reforms came online the year I got these, I got this um, fellowship and suddenly it was taxable income and my income was reduced by 20%, 25%. So as he was cutting taxes for the top, he was also punishing people at the bottom. Mm. It was all, it was the period of the mergers and acquisitions, the, you know, the walls of wall street were baying at the moon deregulation at the top. It produced all this fast money in, um, in financial speculation, but there were material things that he did that made life really hard and really horrible for people at the bottom. Like I actually remember there was this whole thing about deinstitutionalization where you close down state run um, institutions, mental institutions, right. They're all like rotting away now in the North, mm -hmm. I don't know about California. And I, I actually recall like how that affected the landscape of New York city. Like suddenly you just saw a lot more homeless people. And there were people who were obviously in distress who had been, you know, 
kicked out of these institutions, which weren't like heavenly, but they were at least protected from the elements and everything. So he made Reagan's sadism, like really made our world in some way. And I feel like that soft spoken, you know, very gentle feminine thing that turns into sadism, that really embodies like Nancy Reagan. Like I'm mm -hmm. a soft spoken Republican matron who can turn on a dime and just like, mm -hmm. Give you, you know, if you're not cleaning or silver right or something. Yep. Yeah, I, I'm almost positive that Haynes and Moore like really studied those Republican ladies. I think that this is an important point that you bring up specifically as it pertains to Todd Haynes' film and and the characters in it, but also to your book. You know, this idea of of the of the PMC kind of being this class of people who avoid conflict at all costs yep. that and and that for real structural material change to actually happen to to elicit that requires an enemy and so much of this sort of you know bourgeois like pmc kind of uh, society refuses to acknowledge that there is any enemy refuses to acknowledge that anybody is at fault for anything right that all of these things are done on the individual plane and that there's these sort of unique uh, specific like failings of of the person if they don't succeed in terms of social mobility. Canceled. You can, <laughs> right. You can be canceled. Right. Not, because you failed. You failed as a person, as an individual. To yes. achieve state of enlightenment. That's right. But cancellation is not like um, antagonism. There's no respect in cancellation. Like, uh, I've always believed this. Like, in any war, in any sport, in, if you're fighting against someone, you have to respect them. Like, you have to respect the rules of the game. You have to respect the fact that you might be defeated. But I feel like with the cancellation thing, it's part of this really like ratcheting up of all the things we were talking, we've been talking about into this position where we can actually just excommunicate you. So you do not exist. Yes. So you are, you are unworthy of existence. And inherent in the term canceling is the problem, right? Is that it's not generative in any way, right? It's, it's just, subtracting and and there's there's nothing being made out of that antagonism to your point no and i would even like i would think that this film actually and i know haynes is really you know into this whole thinking about what happened with aids in the 80s and reagan was that the reagan really acted as if if he ignored AIDS and if he ignored gay people like they would not exist like the, and they would disappear somehow it's like wish it's it's very childish too it's like wishing if I don't pay attention to you then you just drop off the face of the earth mm -hmm. so that's the thing about the PMC and its critics and you know because I've been Twitter mobbed recently the center <laughs> of their um, criticisms of me is basically you don't ex you don't deserve to exist you disagree with me and there and you know whatever like weird DSA etiquette I need to protect and therefore we need to just extirpate you from the environment because you are so illegitimate and I feel like as the social bonds have degenerated over 50 years of neoliberalism, austerity, and like punishing ordinary people in the working class, we have so little idea about solidarity and about how to trust each other and respect each other enough to even brook differences of opinion on the left. It's 
crazy. It's like, if you don't agree with me, you are like lower than the devil. Like you are, you are lower than the low lowest person. And I'm just going to get up here on my high horse with my 93 followers and jump on you. Um, <laughs> but it's, but, but it, and it feels awful when it's happening, but it's sort of where our politics are today. And I was just, I grew up in a time when I thought like if I entered academia, I would be with these people who are so interested in ideas and we would debate, we would debate them and there would be these sort of open disagreements, but we could come together. And so, and then I've discovered like just, just the opposite is happening, even in academia. So we have this evolution of um, unspoken consensuses and then everyone's so terrified about not fitting in that there's just more and more thought conformity and less and less real debate about the issues that we, you know, just very basic issues, even in you know, our interpretations of history or you know, our interpretations of gender identity. There are just some, and I find this really scary is that there's a narrowing of what's permitted to be discussed right now. There's yeah. a narrowing of what is uh, allowable in the public discourse. And so, more more maybe you know we're just all like in our wren woods or wren rights whatever retreats like only able to listen to one person describe their healing process and then we all participate in this sort of mystical um agreement and i that's why i feel like haynes really captured like the political turpitude the cultural the the political impasse but by only focusing on like the cultural symptoms mm-hmm. and that was like a really brilliant way to come to his critique because it is critique in the end right i mean she julianne moore plays a horrific character who finally <laughs> ends up with this environmental illness retreated into her um igloo and i thought one of the most intense points because she has this very like you know, corp, like smarmy husband who you you just who treats her like she's you know a little porcelain doll, and he's not at all sympathetic. But when he's taking her as, uh, towards the end of the film, when he's sort of accompanying her into the igloo because he's come to visit her with this with her stepson, and um, she's leaning on him, and they've sort of had this like affectionate lean throughout the film where you know, he's very courtly and she's very you know fragile and she leans on him she said they're walking together towards the igloo and then she stumbles she starts to cough and then she pushes him away this is another moment of utter violence in this like Mm -hmm. um very very horrific film to begin with but this where things are very static so Mm -hmm. the violence are even more horrible she pushes him away and she goes it's your cologne and he goes i'm not wearing any and you feel the sympathy it's like immediate sympathy where i'm like she's just repulsed by you and she's lying and she's Mm -hmm. come up with this excuse to be pushing away making you feel contaminated or uh, feel like a contaminant and he's there going oh i'm sorry and you feel like he's going to write the check to keep her in that place because he feels so guilty and she's just gone to this. She really is a monster at that. Mm-hmm. You know, she's destroying all her relations with people. Yes, and you even see that that monstrousness manifest physically, right? The longer she's there, and the more sort of corrosive and terrible she becomes, the more we see the those sort of you know facial lesions. Oh, she's healing. She's healing, but she's healing, <laughs> right? Oh, I know. 
And she's the, I, I found her um, physical, her physicality uh, just fascinating in and of itself. She's this wafer thin, the, the clothes she's wearing are just hanging off of her. She's sort of skeletal and she looks like she can barely hold herself up. Um, and, and, and that oxygen tank. I actually, I actually found it interesting and I don't, I don't want to superimpose, you know, the allegory of AIDS too much onto the, her disease, because I think the, the choice, as you said, of it being MCS is a very purposeful one, but I did find it interesting that she had a lot of these external markers of a person in the late stages of AIDS, where there are these facial lesions, you're carrying around an oxygen tank, you've lost a lot of weight, you're very pallor. Um, and, and, you know, I think there's some amount of like purposefulness on the part of Haynes to give her illness a physical manifestation that is in some way similar to the things that we were seeing happen to our, our fellow citizens at the time. But it, we, we still understand that it's, uh, it is its own kind of monstrous disease that she has. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that he's like, Haynes is just really, really courageous because he also saw um, people dying. I saw people dying and you felt really helpless, but the discourse around these upper middle class men, gay men who are often very famous and celebrities, the, their discourse around their illness was a lot about like self-help and healing and you know embracing your symptoms and it was really terrifying. It was really terrifying that that's where they found their niche, like self-help, self-love, mm -hmm. and total physical degeneration at the same time. And so for, for him to put that in the form of this upper middle class woman, I think was a veiled critique of the self-help industries that had risen around and were preying upon the helplessness of people mm -hmm who were suffering from these, you know, completely horrific, you know, dire symptoms. And there were, and there was this kind of like quasi religious worship of the body that was degenerating and no one could, you know, just say like, this is horrific because you were going to be participating in the homophobia of the culture, the homophobia of um, mainstream society. So to give it to um, Julia, to give Julianne Moore to play out is, I think really fascinating, like overdetermination of um, upper middle class PMC privilege and this kind of self-help coming in to take over the discourse of illness around um, this disease that was just like wasting an entire population of people. But what I was going to say was, you know, in the beginning of the film, she's she's shot like a porcelain doll or like a plastic Barbie. Like mm -hmm. her shoes to her complexion to her hair, like she was just absolutely perfect. And you know, she's doing her aerobics class, and one of her friends says, "You don't sweat," and she goes, "I don't." <laughs> and then, and then her body breakdown is all the more dramatic because she's been she's completely plastic porcelain doll, like, and then she becomes sort of so fragile, but very very proud of it. And that's what and that's the PMC aspect of it too, because the illness gives her the specialness, 
where she needs the special treatment. She needs the more expensive treatments. No doctor can figure out what what, um, is happening to her. You know what? The New York Times loves covering stuff like this. Like, look at the past 25 years of New York Times magazine. And they will have, like, the wealthiest lady in the Hamptons with the weirdest disease and give her (laughs) 50 pages. I, I had to I, I I had to like unsubscribe from them because I was just like I hate you I hate when you're creating <laughs> of disease and women I like the fetishism of this I am not going to talk to you about it. I am not going to pay you another cent but a, around the same time you know the uh, this of AIDS there were there was this explosion of the um, autoimmune disease yeah you know, wh- why were these upper middle class people feeling so tired all the time. Why did they not have any energy? And that was a whole part of the um, environmental illness too. It's like, I have no energy, right? I I don't feel right. It's just undiagnosable. It's undefinable. It's indefinable. It's, I, I had this one other thing I wanted to say though. Anyway, maybe it'll come back to me. I had, I wanted to go back for a moment just to what you were talking about in terms of sort of like the, the new age self-help kind of movement. Um, specifically as it pertains to kind of the AIDS crisis, only because I I feel like I've seen some sort of vestiges of that here in San Francisco, Um, just, you know, being around like a a major LGBTQ uh, plus community and uh, also being part of a 12-step program, which which Todd Haynes seems very, very critical of in a lot of ways. Um, I think that there is, you know, if I look at like my own resentments towards like 12 step programs, if I look at a lot of the people in 12 step programs who I find particularly problematic, there is this sort of like flattening of of conflict. Right. There is always sort of like an emphasis on the individual. There's an emphasis on on self-help and and bettering oneself and, and changing a frame of mind and perspective. And I think that this manifests itself really phenomenally in one of the, the last scenes in the in the film when uh, the guru is sort of holding this dialogue amongst a lot of the the uh, patients at Renwood. And one of them, Nell, has just lost her husband. And she is asked the question, why did you get sick? Not how did you get sick, but specifically what, like, like what, what is the thing in you that caused your sickness? And she attempts to cast a certain level of blame at uh, the inefficacy of society at large to understand or to try to treat the illness. And in that moment, she's sort of castigated and told like that anger is just another extension of your disease, of your sickness. Like you're not allowed to be angry. You're not allowed to look at the failings of, of society. Everything has to be individual. Everything has to be on you. And I see so much of that, I think, still in my experience with, uh, you know, members of this community who have survived and moved past, who are now in a lot of these programs um, where, where there is still very much an emphasis on, on the idea of the individual, on the idea of bettering yourself and positive attitudes. Like Marianne Williamson still gets in trouble for this, right? Like, like that she had, had written about this extensively in the late 80s, that, that you know, like a, a sound body and mind and, and a positive outlook would be the thing to cure you from AIDS. Like it, it happens all the time. Oh, this is, and this was what um, Renwood was promising, you know, basically like positive attitudes were going to cure you of this disease that no one could cure you of include. So it was AIDS and environmental illness. I mean, I think that's a, that's a really good point to bring up because the whole attitude towards anger is one of pacification. Mm-hmm. So anger as a passion is 
um, holding you back. It's making you sick. So says the guru. And then in all of these help regimes, you're supposed to like take your resentments and anger and put them in a blue bubble and send them out into the universe. <laughs> um, and, and you're supposed to be, you know, letting go and all this other stuff. Whereas I feel like we have every reason to be angry. There's every objective reason in the world to be angry. And this woman, the older woman who is expressing her anger, um, she's, her body's turned away. Her, um, her whole body posture is one of rejection of the guru's teachings. And, and yet I feel like this, this kind of management of anger translates now into human resources training yeah. in anger management training it has basically become the attitude of your bosses and of course the upper classes and bosses and capitalists always thought the worker was angry and unjustifiably angry and literally what you had to do was quell their rebellion quell their anger now we've so internalized this attitude that we were having to quell our own um justifiable anger and you know what anger is not going to kill you like okay if you're really angry all the time like i am there are really good <laughs> ways of managing it. you're not managing it you can channel that energy because yeah. you can um but there's like a total non-acceptance of that as an affect you have all every other feeling and or actually i don't know if you can have every other feeling because those feelings that the guru was presenting were so pacified is the best word i can think of but um anger is really really the one that you have to control that you cannot permit yourself to actually experience and it marks you and she was so marked because all the other people are relaxed and you know open to the guru and she's actually like you know turning away and you feel like she's going to be canceled or you know mm -hmm. the magic circle but yeah this is what i was going to say so as Julian Moore de degenerates physically and as she like moves away from those floral peach, you know, um, padded um, dresses with all the ruffles and the plastic Barbie shoes, she becomes she's wearing like little trainers and um, athleisure. And then her athleisure becomes even more monastic and it's just um, plain sweatshirts and sweatpants. She looks more and more like us during the pandemic. Like, totally. Wear those clothes. That's that's what we've all worn for a whole year. Like we've been mm -hmm. wearing our pajamas basically yes. for um, fourteen months or whatever. Fourteen months. And um, and I was thinking about like the grotesque um fashions of the eighties and the hair that um Haynes was showing, and then this kind of like degeneration into the pajama because there is no like actual public interface anymore where we feel like we need to present ourselves as adults with other adults to respect them like either we're dressed like doll either she's dressed like a doll or she's dressed like in her pajamas about to go to the morgue or bed right and <laughs> yeah. like that where and that's where we are like yes these two things because there is no public presentation now well you and i we're all connected now because of skype we have these interfaces but i could be in my pajamas like underneath you know i could be wearing i i am wearing slides you know i only wear trainers the whole thing about comfort and this kind of infantilization that we've all had to go through for the past 13 months is also predicting the, the kind of physicalization of our inability to actually or you know the impossibility recently of actually like participating in a public where we have to deal with the complexity of other people, where we have to be formal, where we have to make 
um, arguments to persuade people of what we're mm -hmm. saying. Like what you were saying, what the guru says, what the self-help guru says is all of this should be self-evident because look, I healed myself. Mm -hmm. Totally infantilizing. Like there's no argumentation. There's no proof. Like all you, if you accept this, then you should be um, accepting of these truths and this deepest, most private process in me should be the deepest, most private process in you. And it's, it's like that, I think in the 80s, Keynes really captured that is just the utter collapse of public discourse, public rhetoric, public spaces, public programs, just, you know, like that, 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 that destruction really has had monumental consequences for us. And I think that in today's moment, not only with you know, the sort of logistical scriptures of COVID that you talk about, but also as we think about like, you know, technology and social media in particular, and these kinds of, uh, you know, inter digital interfaces, allowing us to take that hyper mediated experience, like to the nth degree, where we're, we're managing out of all sensorial existence completely and, and narrowing the aperture even further that allows this kind of rejection of, of, you know, a collective rejection of the body in ways that I agree with you are, are insanely destructive and, and, you know, enable this sort of PMC delusion of, of balance. Yeah. Of, of superiority, of optimization, like right. you're optimizing your identity. Like I was thinking about how you, you know, we just have become these little pods and then we're uh, optimizing all of our relations through our, you know, and curating our, our social media streams. But, you know, Renwood still looks very funky in 1995 <laughs> or 1980s. Renwood looks like a kind of not too um, renovated, like summer camp. Yes. <laughs> it, it, it looks very toxic. Like it looks very unhygienic. Like I think in today's like, hyper hyper retreats now like the most luxurious retreats if you just look online like type up you know detox luxury retreat like you'll see that they're much more they're even they're streamlined to the max they look like the interior of the spacecraft in 2001 a space yes. you know redwood still looks yes. like your, your third grade summer camp like we've mm -hmm. only enhanced the technical isolation, but also the optimization of all relations. Um, that's all technology has done. Like it was all there. The structure was all there as, as Haynes shows us. Uh, the mise-en-scene has just changed, but mm -hmm. it's all there. You also made me realize that there is, that the specialness that you're talking about that Julianne Moore's disease gives her is also the thing that fills her emptiness, right? She's She has purpose and she can be, identified with this thing she she can be um you know animated and uh and defined by it whereas before she was you know a woman sort of cultivating a home and preening her roses and and she really did have that profound sense of emptiness and the paradox is that she is still intensely empty but that this this disease is not only has not only allowed her to be special, but it has given her purpose. It has given her, it has filled her up in some way. This speech that she gives when she's offering the testimonial is one of the most brilliant 
cinematic monologues I've ever seen just for how inarticulate it is and how horrifying the inarticulate um, aspect of her is. She goes, I like, I, I, I don't want to keep channeling her, but it just, <laughs> I, 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 she like kind of stumbles, she stutters, and she says these completely banal, empty cliches, like horrifyingly empty cliches. Like I would give my students Fs for it if they ever said that in class. <laughs> she says them like they're all profundities, like, you know, like they're the burning bush, like she's Moses and she's discovered the scriptures of God. And they're all about like, I used to hate myself. I, I, I thought I was like crazy. And then, and she's so pleased with herself. And I was just like, wow, this is, this is, this is the moment of heart. Like for me, that was like where you understood like her total transformation into the monster because yes. she uses specialness to fill her emptiness. And there's and- so many people like <laughs> And the reaction of the crowd meets the horror yeah. with a, this, that, that same level of like performative clarity, like, oh, yes, we all understand yeah. what you're saying. And it makes that moment so much more unnerving. She, what did she just fucking say? She said nothing. And they're like, oh, oh amazing. That was amazing. And um, yeah, that, yeah, that was that was really critical for me. Yeah, I think that's a great place to close it. Um, and uh, yeah, Catherine, do you maybe just want to take a quick moment before we let you go to to talk a little bit about your book, Virtue Hoarders, and, and maybe just pitch it to, to people who are listening to the show? This book is about the professional managerial class, but it's a polemic. I'm not giving you the whole complete sociological history. Of, I am being nerdy about it, but um it's about the cultural and ideological configuration of a class between the working class and the capitalist. And it's made up of about 25% of the American um, working population now. The, the most elite segments of it, like who have higher education credentials, um, now make a business of looking down on and justifying their superiority to ordinary people. And so this is what I really wanted to focus on was how they take ordinary activities like reading a book, like having sex, like having children and re- consumerize them um, and overlay them with so much anxiety about performance, consensus and fungibility that they become totally unrecognizable to ordinary people. The other thing I think is really distinctive about this class, and I've been really thinking about the American professional managerial class and how it sort of radiates across the globe now is this class is convinced that all other people who existed before it in history are just complete morons. And they figured out how to eat better, exercise better. Um, they kind of invented good sex, God knows. And then they um, and and they are anti-racist. They are liberals. They have you know um, so much respect for every single kind of identity. But the one thing they do not want to look at is actually the class relation class economic economics or historical materialism and in fact they hate history and it really scares me that this class has so much power and continues to monopolize most media channels and academia and even left political organizing now and so i wrote this book in a way to free myself from the ideological you know um chains of um that bind me and i know that it's not easy for some liberals to accept but i've just had such an incredible response from people all over the world 
and people have been telling me their stories and saying, you know, I've been feeling this way. I didn't have a, a name for it. And so um, I'm readying myself to write the next polemic, which is about trauma as a mode of communication in the digital age. Amazing. Oh, I am there for that. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much. The book, again, is Virtue Hoarders, The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class. The film is Safe, directed by Todd Haynes. The guest is Catherine Liu. Catherine, thank you again so much for being here today. Charlie and Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you. We, uh, as always, have been Hit Factory. Follow us at Hit Factory Pod. Subscribe at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. And we will see you all next time. And with that, we are one with the power that created us. We are safe. And all is well in our world.